Jericho Road is a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church. It's a Sunday school class that happens at 9.30 on Sunday mornings, and you're welcome to join us. This fall, we are studying Genesis, the story of us, and I hope we'll get you thinking about an old story in a new way. image behind me is from a Google search called Vintage Monkey Bars. Just look up Vintage Monkey Bars and you will find all kinds of pictures. I happen to remember this. I'm not sure why my elementary school thought this was a good idea, but we had like 10 foot monkey bars. Did y'all have those with the double turrets and in the middle? And, And it was over a black top and you could hang really high and I would hang upside down for a long time talking to my best friend Mark Ray we just hang upside down and I know I did drop down a few times I never broke my collarbone but many people did and but I did land on my head which might explain a whole lot and uh, over the last uh, last few years I've learned a lot about playgrounds because we have one next to the church I've learned about playground architecture now we don't build monkey bars like we used to I'm, I'm not sure why they even thought that was a good idea in the 60s uh, but uh, But what we have learned is that a good playground has a fence around it. Did you hear what I said? A good playground always has a fence around it. Now, it's not for the reason that you might think. You might think that a fence is to keep, maybe keep critters out or or, or keep the children from, from escaping, perhaps. No, a good playground has a fence around it because when you put a fence around a playground, the children play the breadth of the yard. If they don't have a fence, they huddle close to the swings and to the little tower and the things that we build for them. So, so I was taught that when you, when you build a playground, you put a fence around the yard. I did have one funny experience when we, when we remodeled our playground next to the church. A young mother came up to me and said, can you wrap that pole in the center with some kind of foam? I said, well, tell me why. I said, well, my son was running and he just collided with the pole and just about knocked him out. Can you wrap that, please? I said, well, let's see if he does it again. Right. I mean, I mean, I'm the I'm the 10 foot monkey bar guy. Right. I mean, what are you telling me? Well, the last four chapters have been about something very similar to this. Uh, we have learned in, from Genesis chapters one through 11 that we are given an ethic that's much like a fence around a playground. I want you to think about Genesis 1 through 11 in this way because in the past four chapters, we've looked at, at an ethic called vocation, permission, and prohibition. It began in the garden. We're given something to do. We're all given something to do regardless of our age or circumstance or health or what have you. Uh, we're given permission, and that's, that's freedom to create. This is what it means to be made in the image of God. We're given freedom to soar, if you will, in our own way, to be our own people. But we also have prohibition. There are some things we cannot have. There are some things we must not do. There are commandments of God. And seen in this way, I want to also, in addition to a playground fence, I want you also to imagine uh, God's ethic, if you will, as a, as a big golf umbrella, something that we remain under and we remain dry and safe. But if we stray out uh, from under the umbrella, we get wet. One thing we've learned about the ethic is this, the ethic that's given us in Genesis 1 through 11. If you lose one, your life becomes skewed. You have to keep the three in tension, all three in tension. So vocation and permission without prohibition becomes rampant greed. Uh, Permission and prohibition without vocation means that you're all up in your head. You're not getting anything done. 
Vocation and prohibition means a, a, a bureaucratic, legalistic, angry religion that doesn't fit God's plan for us. Can, can I keep, you, know, you can keep going in any number of this. And so what we see in this poem that's really the first part of the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11, is a poem by necessity. It has to be poetry because of the way the Hebrew language uh, works. Uh, what we see, we see life skewed individually. Adam and Eve, they lose their way. They, they violate the prohibition. Uh, we see Cain and Abel. We see a family life that's skewed. Uh, we see a systemic world that's skewed. Humankind is so wicked that the cosmos falls in on itself and we have Noah's Ark. And then today we're going to see a way that a, a, corporate, a corporate group of people uh, skew the ethic and that would be the Tower of Babel. So that's our lesson today is the Tower of Babel and a violation of the ethic that we're given in Genesis chapter 1. Now, I want, to, I want y'all to open your Bibles to page 8 if you've got them on the table. And then I want to read the story of the Tower of Babel. I've got it on the screen if you don't have a Bible nearby. But we're going to do some highlighting, so it would be good to have it open. So it's page 8, Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. As they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come and let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And after they made bricks for stone and bitumen for mortar, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the mortals had built. And the Lord said, look, they are one people. They have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth and then left off the building, left off building the city. Therefore, it was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. The Tower of Babel. Um, I think we need to undo some misperceptions before we try new learning. I think this is a story that we all have some passing familiarity with. Uh, Most of us have had a Bible when we were children that had a picture of the Tower of Babel in the back. Perhaps we've seen a movie. We've heard some things. One of the things I want us to undo this morning right now is, is something that I was taught very, very early on. And that is, I was taught that they built a tower in order to reach heaven and to find God. Did y'all, did, were y'all ever taught that as a little child in Sunday school? That, they, that the sin was that they built a tower so they could, you know, knock on God's door. Here I am, I'm up here with you, Lord. Uh, and, uh, and so that was, the, that was the whole point of the tower. However, the text doesn't say that. If you look at it carefully, it simply says that they built a, a city with a tower in the heavens. That's not a tower to reach heaven. That's a tower in the heavens. It was just really tall. I stumbled across something a few years ago that really helps me get the, get the point of this. And in 1893 at the Chicago World's Exposition, uh, they had the first Ferris wheel. And the Ferris wheel was the bomb in 1893 because nobody had ever been that high before. See, the Ferris wheel was made possible with the invention of structured steel. Then would come the skyscrapers that we know today, but not before the invention of the steel to make it. And so they made a a Ferris wheel, and nobody ever been that high. I'm pretty sure the the highest building in the United States before 1893 was the Washington Monument. So for things to be built 
tall was just just really cool. <laughs> to be high was as cool as anybody could ever imagine. This is before flight. This is before technology. And so height denotes power. It denotes wealth. I mean, you know, height is just something really cool to do. So let's, let's remember this about the Tower of Babel. They didn't build it to find God in the heavens. They built it because they were proud. The tower is a representation of pride. Also, I can... I can Back this up by telling you, if you look at the text, also want to remind you that God doesn't approach it from the heavens. Remember, God's everywhere and God could certainly be up there. But God comes down to earth to look at the tower. He comes down and looks up at it. It's just not that important to God at all. So that's the first lesson we want to undo. The tower was not built for them to reach heaven. And this is why God confused their languages. The tower was a representation of their own pride. And there's more. I'll get to it in a minute. I was also taught, and I bet you were too, that the giving of the different languages was a curse by God and a punishment uh, for the tower. Remember growing up with that one, right? God cursed them with the different languages. However, this too is a misuse of the story. I'll show you how. I, I, I didn't know this, but I found out that in South Africa during the apartheid movement, this text was actually used as, um, as a reasoning or as an example of the necessity to keep races apart because you had the superior European languages versus the inferior African languages. Can you see where people can go with this? No, having different languages is, is, not, is not a curse. Uh, the problem with this, with this idea of, of the curse of language is that is it denies the fact that, that having language is clearly within the ethic that we're given in Genesis 1 through 11. It's part of the permission. It's part of being made in the image and likeness of God. Uh, having your own language is squarely a gift. It's the uniqueness of how God made us. Here's some fun language facts. Maybe help us undo the idea a little bit. You know that language can, can convey much more than simply communication by stringing up words uh, in a sentence, just words alone, but rather language can actually help us form thought forms and pictures with just a word. I'll give you an example. My parents are from the country. They're rural people, and their, their parents were very poor, especially during the Depression. When I was a child, we always called a meal dinner. Does anybody remember that? We always called it dinner. Everything was dinner. Well, the reason why they called it dinner in the country is because it comes from a root word uh, that's a Latin word that simply means to break the fast, which by definition simply means that dinner is heavy eating. Dinner for working folks and dinner for poor folks and dinner for country folks means that you had to fuel up after the arduous day that you had or you fueled up in the middle of the day so that you could finish the work and then go to bed. Dinner, dinner was intended to simply help you survive. And this is why I remember my grandparents would always eat voraciously and very quickly. They'd eat very fast. I think, I think they knew something about hunger and so they knew something about dinner. Supper, on the other hand, is an old French word uh, that simply means to sit lighter fare in the evening. So that in time, and it, now we mix the two up all the time now, dinner and supper, but a generation or two ago, dinner was country and supper was city. Supper was something that people could do late in the evening and sit lighter fare. Dinner was something that you would fill your bellies and go to bed for work the next day. So even language can convey a thought form or a word uh, that, that's reflected of the culture in which we live. But there's still more. I, I would like to say to you that having a global language is not a curse and it's not a sin. 
We've pretty much always had some form of a global language with each other. In Jesus' time, everyone spoke the same thing. They spoke a certain form of Greek called Koine Greek, which means common Greek, which means lowest common denominator Greek. It was just a gobbled together mishmash of merchant's language. It would have a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, a little bit of Greek, much, less, much like the word Spanglish that we've heard mentioned at the borderlands between the United States and Mexico, where you've got a little bit of Spanish, a little bit of English, just gobbled together enough so that people can get along. We also know from our history books that Latin, once the language of the Roman Empire, then became the language of science and became the language of the church. And then today, English will get you anywhere. I mean, global languages can't be a curse. It's a gift. You can go to Shanghai, you can go to Nairobi, you can go to Malaysia, and English can get you anywhere that you want to go. I have my own kind of story with that. I was in a train in Jerusalem earlier this year. I was by myself, and uh, this, is, this is really fun. I was by myself in the train, and I was wearing my cowboy boots. I like to wear cowboy boots and pretend I'm something I'm not. And, uh, and I'm just kind of riding the train, and this fellow's just kind of looking at me, looking at my boots, really. He's looking at me admiringly, and he goes, uh, hmm, Texas. And I said, no, sir. I said, Alabama. He went, hmm, sweet home. Right? Isn't that cool? So, I mean, I mean language, language can get you just about uh, anywhere. It has been noted that English is the ideal global language, not only because of the British Empire covering sort of all the corners of the earth, but also because English is the one language that breaks so many rules. It's the hardest language for someone else to learn. It, break, it just breaks rules. It's not like a romance language with rules or Mandarin with rules. English absorbs everything. And I think it's because of our origins or the origins of our language come from the British Isles and being an island nation. So, for instance, English incorporates French words, whether you know it or not, that come from the Norman invasion or the French, the French invasion of France in 1066. Parliament, dungeon, castle, they're all French words and they're spelled in a French way. We don't follow the rules in English. Norse words come from the Viking invasions of the British Isles. So you've got sky and skirt and skin. Those are all Norse words. And then you have the Anglo-Saxon words that are the origin words that are my favorite words of all. Cow and stone, the best word of all, dog. All right, so in sum, we create with language, we become united with language. Language helps us to cooperate in necessary ways. Language also reflects culture and class and thought forms in deeper ways than we even known. The problem then with this parable, or this poem rather, is not the common language. The problem is disobedience. Their world had become skewed. They violated the ethic. They violated the balance. Like the others in Genesis 1 through 11, in one important way. Or if you've got a Bible on your table, I'm going to get you to hold it out. It was page 8, and we're going to look at uh, Genesis 11, verse 2. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Hold your place. And for those of you who are listening on, you can, you can catch on really quickly. Hold your place and turn back to page 1. It's easy to find. Uh, page 1, and it's Genesis chapter 1, 28. And if you've got a highlighter nearby, I'm going to ask that you highlight it. Genesis 1, 28 on page 1. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Highlight that, please. Uh-oh. Now go back to Genesis chapter 11. As they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. 
They were disobeying God's command to fill the earth and subdue it. They settled in the land of Shinar and they parked it and built a city and that violates the prohibition. There is a wonderful prayer attributed to the 16th century explorer and soldier Sir Francis Drake that says it better than I can. It goes like this. Disturb us, Lord, to dare more boldly, to venture on wider seas where storms will show your mastery, where losing sight of land we will find the stars. We ask you to push back the horizons of our hopes and to push into the future in strength, courage, hope, and love. Here's the problem with the people in Genesis chapter 11. They settled. They lowballed their expectations. They went with what they know. They violated the ethic. So God closed the door so that he could open a window. He closed the door so that he could open a window. Has that ever happened to us? Well, looking at Genesis chapter 11 again, I'm going to show you a key to understanding this passage. It's verse 7. God says, come, let us go down. Now, the us, whenever God refers to the us, it simply means God and God's retinue. They understood God as inhabiting a a heavenly host, if you will. So God and his angels. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there so that they will not understand one another's speech. If you've got a highlighter out there, I want you to highlight the word understand. Now, we don't know the original language of Genesis, but they knew and they would have seen this immediately. The word is Shema. Now, remember what we've learned from chapter 1. Hebrew is a poet's language, so Hebrew, Genesis has to be poetry. There are 8,000 Hebrew words, which means that Hebrew words have to mean more than one thing. The word we translate understand also means to hear. Specifically, it means to hear. Let's also recap something else that we know. Genesis was written when God's people were taken away to exile. 586 B.C., they lost everything. They lost their temple. They lost their homes. The best and the brightest were taken to a faraway land where they were even losing their identity as Jewish people, which is exactly what the Babylonians planned. So they wrote down the stories they had told by the bedside for a thousand years. They began to collate their scripture so that that in this period of exile, they emerge with a Bible. You might say they lost their temple and they gained their religion. They gained their story. They became the people of the book, the people of words. And this is one of the most important words they would ever say, which is here. Faithful Jewish people to this day say a prayer in the morning. They say a prayer in the evening. And it begins with here. Shema Yisrael. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Here, the first word of the prayer is here. God says, let us confuse their language so that they may not hear one another. You know, I like to say, say it a thousand times, I'll say it again. A thousand pages of scripture, the stories are all the same. You're going to be different, you're going to be something else. You're going to be God's people, you're going to be something else. No matter how arcane or weird the story might be, it's always the same story. You're going to be different or you're going to be something else. And how, what does it mean to be different? To hear means to be different. This this scattering, if you will, would be a new start for humanity. God had to close a door so that God could open a window 
for them because it would set up the arrival of a man who does hear. We'll talk about him next week. It sets up the arrival for a man who would show us a new way of being human. It sets up the story of a man who 4,000 years ago would begin our story as well. And his name is Abraham. Now, fast forward, if you will, to me, from with me rather, to Genesis chapter 15 on page 10, verse 1. I'm going to read this to you, uh, and then I'm going to say something about it in terms of hearing. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. The promise was a child if he followed him. And his name's Abram now, but it'll be Abraham soon. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, you've given me no offspring, and so a slave born in my house is to be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir, but one of your very own issues shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, look toward heaven and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And then he said to him, so shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. That's a 4,000-year-old story. That also begins our story. Because when Abraham looked at the stars, he saw us. We are those stars. Now, you might wonder how that could be, but I'll ask you to fast forward again, if you will, to Acts chapter 2, which is found on page 885. Page 885. It's amazing how these stories hang when you begin to look at them in context. So page 885, and I want you to get your highlighters ready because we're going to do a little highlighting here as well. Um. Pentecost, which is the story, um, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost was a harvest festival. It was a Jewish festival. It happens 50 days after the Passover. Penta means 50. And because it happens in early summer, the Mediterranean is like, is like a lake. It's glassy. Travel was really easy then. And because the weather was so nice, people from all over the world would make it to this one. My friend Edan says that Jerusalem would swell from about 35,000 people to a million people on festival weeks. And you can certainly imagine this uh, at the time of Pentecost. They came from countries all over the place. We have, we have a, su a Sunday that we call Pentecost on Sunday mornings where we read this story and the, the poor hapless lector who's a, right, who has to read on Pentecost Sunday is surprised with all these first century place names. Remember? Pamphylians, Babylonians, Phrygians, Cappadocians, I mean, all this, just all these wild names. And I remember when I was in Decatur, I had this one lector who practiced so hard. He, he almost stuck it. It was almost like a Simone Biles kind of thing. He, he, he read every place name perfectly, and he got to the end, and he said, Arabs. So, Dude, so close. Right, Arabs. Right. But the, what this lesson reminds us is that people from all over the world were there. Now, remember, remember the story of Babel. Come, let us go down and confuse their speech so that they might not, may not hear and be scattered upon the earth. At the Feast of Pentecost, people from all over the earth are all gathered in one place. Let me read it. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. 
Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and they were bewildered because each one of them heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are all these who are speaking not Galileans? How is it then we hear each of us in our own native language, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, Mesopotamians, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. <laughs> in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. If you've got a highlighter, go back to verse 8. And how is it that we hear each of us in our native languages. They hear. The miracle is not the, mir- is not the miracle of languages. It's not that country boys from Galilean were speaking Phrygian. The miracle is that we hear the word of God in deed and in power. It is in hearing that we're different. It is in hearing, beginning with Babel, completed on the day of Pentecost, beginning with a man named Abram who stepped under a night sky, and ending with St. Luke's this morning. We can be different in this hearing kind of way. Hearing allows us to be a new kind of humanity. Hearing allows us to be the body of Christ. But it requires obedience. And it's disobedience that caused all the trouble. The clergy of our diocese who knew Bishop Stow, and you knew Bill Stow here because he had an office here before he died, Bill's a, a lovely man. He had lots of stories. There was a famous story in which Bill reflected on God's commandment uh, as found in the letters of Paul in the backs of our Bible that we all take our place in this thing we call the body of Christ. It requires obedience, vocation, permission, prohibition. We all have a role to play within this ethic. It, it hangs throughout all the stories of Scripture. And so Bill had a dream one night, and, and God told him, remember St. Paul said that you could be an eye or a hand or a foot or anything like that. Bill had a dream that that God wanted him to be the big toe in the body of Christ. He didn't want to be the big toe. He was an up-and-coming young clergy person. He was a man of vision. He said, I don't want to be the big toe. I want to be the eye. Lord, let me be the eye because I can see things. I have vision. And God said, that's fine, Billy. You can be the eye, but all you're going to see is the inside of a sock. All right, you get what I'm saying there? So the, the, the sin was not the tower. The sin was settling. The sin was lowball expectations. The sin was not being obedient. The sin was sailing too close to the shore. The sin was going with what they know. In my sermon upstairs this morning, I said, and I've just read this recently, makes perfect sense to me, that we get into trouble when we don't diversify. We tend to dwell on one thing that we know and we zero in on it, we master it. And we lose sight of what God asks us to do. Remember, the ethic has three parts, vocation, prohibition, and permission. We lose sight of the freedom to create and to love and to, and to learn and to fail and to grow. So God wants us to pick up a paintbrush and he wants us to pick up a banjo and he wants us to pick up a surfboard and he wants us to be terrible at those things because we can find the joy of learning uh, when we make new friends and we stretch ourselves away from our shores. The problem that I see around here is that people die inside when they master their world. We win our game and we miss out on the adventure. and We settle on the plain of Shinar and we build our towers and we forget that God made us to fly. So that's the story of the Tower of Babel, and I hope I've gotten you thinking of it in a new way. Our mission is to be an open, inviting, and serving community 
in which Jesus Christ is the center of our life and the gospel is modeled and proclaimed in word and sacrament.